Welcome to Artscape, a new presentation from SFU Woodward's Cultural Programs, located in Vancouver, BC, at SFU Goldcorp's Center for the Arts. I'm Michael Boucher, Director of Cultural Programs. Join me as I sit down with leading edge artists in dance, theater, cinema, music, and digital arts, as they explore new practices and approaches, reflecting the ever-changing landscape of contemporary arts. Please tune in to our conversations of discovery anywhere, anytime on your favorite streaming platforms. Welcome to Artscape. Today, I'm so pleased to have with us an amazing talent, Christian Barry, the uh, one of the founding members of 2B Theater. And along with him is Ben Kaplan, one of the stars of Olstock, a refugee love story. So we're just so pleased to have you both. I'd like to just jump right in. I'm assuming you're in different parts of the country right now or, or in North America somewhere. So I'll start with you, Christian. Tell us a little bit about the origins of the company. This is a, a pretty extraordinary company in Canada. It, it truly is a creative force. Your track record is, is rather amazing. Uh, definitely the talent that you draw, the talent that you find, uh, hats off to you. And I love the fact that your ambition is not just a local ambition. It's not even a national one. It's an international one. It's telling great stories and tapping into whatever it is that takes to make these great stories. How did this all start? This company is 22 years old. We started to be theater company with some friends, myself and Anthony Black and a few others who found different paths along the way. So Zach Fraser was one of them. Angela Gasparetto was one of them. Andrea Diamond was one of them. We, we were a group of friends who wanted to make plays. We were young graduates. We felt like no one was going to hand us the keys. You know, Anthony and myself in particular were a couple of young, precocious directors. And it felt like we were in a very conservative context, particular part of Turtle Island. And so we just decided to start a company and start making something. 2B Theatre Company was founded informally in 1999, incorporated in the year 2000. We just started doing stuff, doing stuff, following our instincts and following our impulses. Little did we know that 22 years later, we, we would have built a company that has toured to 67 cities in 13 countries on five continents. We knew that we wanted to stay in Halifax. And that was another really interesting kind of question. And I think obstacle that young artists from our region face. The question is like, is there an audience here for the kind of work I want to make? And we didn't know the answer to that question, but we saw a fellow by the name of Robert Lepage doing it in Quebec City. And, you know, so we were, again, it was the year 2000 festivals like the Du Maurier World Stage Festival in Toronto were, were showing us a path that we chose to follow, which was that you can live where you want to live and you can make work for the world stage. You can create shows that are designed to tour, designed to find an audience. And I'll tell you, that made a lot of sense to us. We were an original creation company. We were making shows that we poured our hearts into. And sometimes it could take two years. Sometimes it could take four years to make a show from scratch. And when you put that much labor and that much thought and that much care into making a new show, you don't want to pitch it in the dumpster after the two or two and a half week run you could manage in a, in a small city the size of Halifax. Inspired by international trailblazers like Lepage, we decided we were going to be a touring company. 
we were going to make the work, and then we were going to find an audience beyond uh, Nova Scotia for that work. We started going to festivals and networking and meeting with folks and just building the relationships that we needed to build in order to make that happen. And years later, we still do that. That's still the model. We, we create original works from scratch, usually in our home city of Halifax, and then we take those shows on the road across Canada and around the world. Thank you so much. When it, when you look at an example of Olstock, a refugee love story, how did that birth itself? Was it something that you connected with Hannah Moskovich, the uh, uh, writer, playwright? Or was it a, a process, a dance wherein you said, hey, let's do this work. Here's the context of it. I've got a premise here was you know, my own little zone with regards to writing it and then putting it into a think tank. How did that unfold? I feel like the beginning of the story was I was interested in making something with Ben. I was a fan of what Ben does on stage. I was a fan of his music. I was a fan of his uh, energy. I was a fan of his personality on stage. And I just kind of had a pure impulse of, I feel like we should get in a room together and see what and we didn't know what we were going to make when we got together. Ben came over to my house with some uh, pickled herring and a bottle of vodka. And we started talking about what we might make and what was going on in the world and what kinds of things we were interested in as artists, I think, aesthetically, musically, uh, theatrically, but also politically. It was the year was 2015. There was a federal election on its way. And we were also... Uh, as a society talking a lot about the international refugee crisis. There was a lot of conversation in the political discourse about uh, Syrian refugees and how many Syrians Canada should be bringing in. There was 10,000, there was 25,000, there was conversation about quotas and conversation about jobs and conversation about the economy. Both Ben and I felt like this was all that was occupying our thinking. And as artists, we had a question, what can we offer to this conversation? What can we bring to it? I don't know how we found our way to this, but eventually I think we realized that what we might be able to do is offer some insight into the human experience of the international refugee crisis. We didn't know the right answer to the question about how many jobs and how many uh, refugees and all this stuff, but we did feel like there was a human element to the refugee experience that wasn't part of the conversations that we were hearing at that time. So we started to talk about that and started to even begin writing songs. And we were also talking about Jewish folktales and, and, and Ben's ancestry. And again, a lot of this was intuitive. We didn't really know what we were going to make yet. While we were beginning to make before we knew what we were making, my wife, Hannah Moskovich, happened to take our son who was in a stroller at the time. I think he was still less than a year old. She took him to Pier 21, which is an institution and a museum about the refugee experience here in Canada. And, and uh, you know, in many ways, I call it our Ellis Island because it was such a key point of entry for so many immigrants and refugees into Canada in the, in the early part of the 20th century. And while she was there, she stumbled upon the immigration records of her great-grandparents, Chaim and Chaya, and she realized this child in the stroller wouldn't be here if those two people had not taken the risk to come across an ocean to find a, a safe place to call home and, and to raise a family. So that just began a journey of discovery into 
what their experience was, what it might have been as to Jewish Romanian refugees fleeing the pogroms of Eastern Europe in 1908. And that opened up a rich, complex, beautiful, and dark well of discovery that became the raw materials of the old stock refugee love story. Extraordinary. Hannah, in, in regards, I didn't want to reference the relationship, but you brought <laughs> it in. So, so, But generally, she's not a core member of the company, correct? That's right. Yeah, when Christian got a hold of me and asked me if I wanted to make something, we were, you know, batting our heads against the wall a little bit and trying to figure it out. I, after three or four writing sessions, was a little bit disheartened because it didn't feel like we were doing anything. And Christian <laughs> said to me, this is process, Ben. You have to trust the process. It's all, we're, we really are working, I promise you. And I thought, this guy is nuts. And then I started doing a little bit more research and I realized, wait a minute, your romantic partner happens to be a world-renowned playwright. Can we get her in on the team? And Christian was like, well, I mean, that would be nice, but she's very busy. She's in high demand. I know she'd like to do it, but I'm not sure if she has the time. We can have that conversation. And I like, I think at every subsequent meeting, I was like, let's get Hannah Moscovich in on this project. <laughs> and it was when when she discovered this story of Chaim and Chaya. And that, I think at that point, Christian had the chutzpah to say, well, I think I think if we're going to make a play about your great grandparents. I think you have to write it. And, uh, and not that I wasn't happy to be working with Christian and 2B, but I'll say I was overjoyed yeah. when we were able to rope Hannah into the project as well. I have been as a wanderer, this is not the case. So what are we looking into with this show? What, what is the exciting thing about this show? Well, Old Stock, a refugee love story, tells the true story of two Jewish Romanian refugees coming to Canada in 1908. Uh, and it's about their experience as refugees looking for a place to call home and a place to uh, experience uh, uh, all those human things that we all want to experience, raising a family, feeling safety, feeling love. And uh, we tell that story in a music theater hybrid approach uh, where Ben plays a character called the Wanderer and uh, all of the wonderful musicians and storytellers kind of uh, tumble out upon the stage and, and share this uh, true story with the audience. Um, I can say to you, you know, when Ben and I started working on this show and collaborating with Hannah Moscovich on it, what we were fundamentally interested in was giving audiences a human lens on the refugee experience. And by telling this uh, true familial, uh, personal story, we try to just give the audience a glimpse of what that human experience might be. And Ben, for you? Yeah, I think, you know, what you're going to see is a musical that was written by a creative team that hates musicals. And so <laughs> we've tried to create something where um, the artifice that is so often a part of, of, of musical theater has been stripped away. And we're presenting this sort of fusion of a concert and a play tucked inside of it. And, um, you know, I've written songs along with Christian for this show that try very much to stand on their own two feet as songs that can really work as a, as a composition, as a songwriting piece and as a musical experience that is integral to itself and tried to find a way of, of threading them together using the subtext of the beautiful scenes that Hannah Moscovich has written as source material, as inspiration for songwriting. And I think it's, it's turned into a, a really lush um, collaborative 
entry point or, or meeting place between the craft of, of performance and the craft of songwriting and the craft of theater all making. Of my pity upon you. you. All of my pity upon you. But so Ben, jumping into it as a songwriter and incredible musical talent, as well as a good, great storyteller. You're used to working in a two or three minute format. Some songs may be longer, but generally telling a story within a very contained framing. And then suddenly you're jumping into a world that seriously, you don't know the end of. These shows sometimes, if permitted, in an innovative company can be an hour, two hours, and who knows? Nicholas Nickleby went on for a day and a half, I think. What was it like for you? It was an interesting challenge figuring out how to find the voice of this work. You know, I think the first show, that, uh, the first song that was written for this show was uh, You've Arrived, which is, I think, the most musical theater of any of the songs in the work, because those were my reference points. It was like, if you're going to write for musical theater, let's tell a story in the song. But Christian was very intentional about saying, I'm not bringing you into this project to write musical theater. I'm bringing you in because you write songs. For me, there was something very interesting about thinking about how to make a, a musical out of work that could stand on its own. And so for me, it was this process of trying to figure out how to how to take the craft that, that I have refined and the things that I do and use it as a tool rather than as a way of moving the story of, of the narrative of the show, of the arc of the show, finding a way of, of writing songs that are responding in some way to the subtext of the show and thinking about the things that are not well explicated through plot. What are the right. things that no one would ever say? What would be an artificial thing to have in a dialogue, but that is that is the emotional content or the underlying thing, which sort of opened up the hand to be able to write songs like Plow the Shit, for example, which is this very dark very dark song that is in some way it's it's trying to put myself into the mind of a person who can organize a pogrom what is the internal logic and how can i find the empathetic view of the person who's who's seeing the world in these terms right. and and to take a thought like that and to try to put it in narrative would have been very very difficult but that, i think that's the strength of what songwriting can do and so for me, it was it was not about troubling myself necessarily with how to use songwriting to tell the whole story, right. but how to use the story as a vehicle for, for the reflections that songs can, can bring. This project started, is it four or five years ago? Yeah, I think Christian first got in touch with me in 2015. Right. Um, and that was that was around the time of the Canadian leadership debate in which our former Prime Minister Harper made the distinction between old stock Canadians versus newer arrivals. It was that 2015 moment right. that sort of helped right. to, to sort of knock us down this hill. And right. then, of course, yeah, the show opened in 2017 in Halifax and has been basically touring nonstop since, give or take a pandemic. And have you just just curious to the narrative itself, has it, um, because you've got tons of performance experience uh, behind you now, has the narrative changed? Do you allow yourselves to to change stuff or like, you know, from the early premiere to it being on the road? Is there a, a process of reflection and change or how, how explain that to me? Yeah, there was a little bit of that. Um, I'd say over the course of the first 40 or 50 performances or the first three runs, I would say, yeah. you know, we ran it in Halifax, in Ottawa and at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. And then our next gig after that, which was a total coup, uh, was we managed to, to present the show off Broadway at 59 E 59 in New York. And I think that I, I remember, I remember receiving some textual additions uh, from Hannah for the New York run, some little refinements that she had made. Right. 
Um, right. But I think by that time, by the fourth time we had opened the show, it was it was pretty well established and, and firm. And what's been really lovely about the the process of continuing to tour it, I've, I think last night was my 346th performance. <laughs> so one of the things that's been lovely about it is is just seeing how robust the writing is that it can continue without any tinkering to to stand up and, and to be meaningful, to stay contemporary, even as the moment that inspired it continues to recede. It's kind of, a, in a way, pretty magical to see that here you are, the show was developed around you to large because of your fire, and you've got this amazing articulate playwright with the words, not say that you don't you don't have command of what your storytelling capabilities are, but that kind of rocket fuel, in a way, when you see the show, and I've experienced it during the Push Festival, uh, an incredible force of field that you're thrown into. And if the show comes at you, to your credit, you, you wield a wicked MC capability. But it's also, I would say, what makes it work for me in many ways is your your the depth of your singing and the thematic connection to the story. And I find that is like, to me, like a dragon fire. You blow it out. It's, it is a, a form of a, an incredible creative thing. And so I just want to commend you on it. And that's such a rare experience to find that the suit upon which you can fly. And few experiences are like that in the creative world. You guys have tapped into something that's pretty extraordinary. Can you just throw back a little bit on where you stand with it, like now at 340 some performances in, where are you at with it? You still love doing it? I'll, I'll say I'll say a few things. 340 odd shows of anything is, is enough to turn it into a job. I think any any job has things that you love and things that are frustrating and difficult. So I won't pander to your audience by saying every single day I show up at the theater just no, ready no, no. to... We're no, not yeah, this, yeah, this is yeah. not a part of it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's days when it's like, where, where am I going to find the strength today to go on this journey? Right. Um, right. And there's something that is so incredible about the little chrysalis of this shipping container, or once I step mm. into it, there's something transformative that happens that no matter how exhausting a day has been, I'm ready right. to, to step out and feel that, that adrenaline of the audience. But I think in terms of the, the repetition and the journey of staying with this show for so long, for one thing, it's, it's given me the opportunity to have a profound admiration for the work that Christian and Hannah have done in their part of building this show. Right. Because the architecture of the way that the show operates, the way that it moves, the, the structure of the storytelling, the way that the set and the lighting, the sound design are all incorporated into this piece. And then Hannah's exquisite writing. I mean, having the opportunity to see the show as many times as I have. There's all of these Easter eggs littered through the text, all of these little repetitions where she just plants a seed over here so that it resonates when it gets spoken over there. This ability to just in a throwaway line about something that's not important in the scene to be giving the audience these little contextualizations that then unfold and flower later on. It's just been wonderful to continue to observe that and to hear the way in which you'll, you'll have these little exhalations from the audience of them like feeling what's happened or whether they've noticed it or not. So that part is certainly very rich. And then beyond that, as a performer, it's just, it's such a profound challenge and blessing to have to walk the same path so many times in a row. I got into trouble with the work because it was beginning to bleed into me and I had a wonderful session, the fabulous Janine Pearson, um, <laughs> who basically said to me, you know, it's normal for an actor 
to be able to do 20 or 30 shows. Like we're equipped with what we have to bring in and, and do it 20 yeah. or 30 times. Yeah. But yeah. by the time you're playing, you know, Henry the eighth for the or Henry the fifth for the 200th time in a season, you have to have tools and strategies to not go home and be a bastard to your wife and children. <laughs> and so the specific example she gave. Um, <laughs> and so like, you know, getting the opportunity to learn about how to achieve these long, these long yeah. stretches and to anything that is not as solid as it can be will unravel given enough repetitions. Uh -huh. So finding the vocal deficiencies, finding the performative deficiencies, the intellectual deficiencies, and, and being given the opportunity to come back to it and come back to it and come back to it and make it stronger has, I think, been one of the most extraordinary educational opportunities in my life. No doubt. Anyone that be put into that kind of responsibility, you're flying a massive 767 when you're doing it, and you are. You're piloting yeah. it in a large way. Yeah. And unfortunately, speaking. I was, well, I was ambitious as we were writing the show. I liked the concept of using all of the vocal timbres and colors that I have in my palace. Let's put them all in the show. Let's have a moment for each thing that I'm working on right now. And let's find a way of using the lowest note I can sing and the highest note I can sing. And we'll put it all in the show, which yeah. is great conceptually until you have to do it seven times a week, every week. With a couple of days in between for travel and tech, it's just, it leaves little space for slacking off on my technique. And so it, it's been a great teacher in that way. If I may, uh, pardon me, the, some of the, the, the wisdom that Ben just dropped spills into other departments as well. When we first built this Ferrari, we didn't know how long we needed it to run. We, we did 11 shows in Halifax and they all sold out and we added a few and and then it just kind of kept going. We went to Ottawa, we went to Edinburgh, and then we were in New York City, and then on and on it went. Little tweaks and adjustments to the set, the way the doors swing open, the way we construct the hinges, the order in which we put everything together. Everything has had to undergo a journey of bringing out finer and finer grains of sandpaper to make things run smoother and make things better. And I want to give a big shout out to the full creative team that's on the road. We happen to have an incredible group of musicians and, and performers on the road right now. And they all take care of one another. Talking about that thing of the energy to, to come into the space. We were talking about the metaphor the other day. Some days you don't have any any logs to put on the community fire. And that's okay. You're just going to sit and warm yourself. Someone else is going to have, have a, some material to offer and some energy to offer. And I really just feel everyone in this group supports one another. So it, it makes it a pleasure to come to work. There was a technician named John working on the show currently in Saskatoon. And John sent out a tweet the other day that said that this was one of the hardest working, most professional groups he's had the pleasure of working with. And he said, the show is so, is so tight because you're all so generous with one another. And for a veteran technician who's actually, he's actually retired. So like <laughs> this guy's put in a lot of work. He's put in a lot of hours. That was really meaningful to me to actually have that recognized the, the professionalism and the care that the whole team brings to work. As a producer, I couldn't be more proud of that. So I just want to shout out some respect to the whole team and the way that yeah. they make that possible, what you're asking about the, the Herculean feat of, of lifting this show every day. Right. It's, it's due in large part to the energy that they all bring to the stage. And I want to add to that, your home-based company that helps organize the tours and manages all the details are incredibly responsive. 
I want to lead into the next point here on this is the the backdrop of the Ukrainian war and seeing the displacement of people and the Ukrainian refugees and other things. How is that in the current performances that you play? Has that had an impact? Is there any resonance in that with with the audiences? For my part, again, like it was funny early in the sh- in the creation process. We knew we were going to make a show about the international refugee crisis. Right. We also knew we didn't want to appropriate a story that wasn't ours to tell. So when Hannah came home from Pier 21 with this very personal familial story, we went, oh my gosh, this is a way that we can talk about something that has had so many iterations and waves and waves of refugees coming to and, and immigrants coming to, to Turtle Island. And we knew we could now tell it in a way that we had access to and in a way that resonated with us personally and that we weren't appropriating somebody else's story. We still wrote what was a very Canadian piece. And we had to ask ourselves, okay, now we're going to take this thing on the road. Is this going to resonate in Australia? Is this going to resonate in Edinburgh? Is this going to resonate in, in New York City? And ultimately, we made the choice to keep it Canadian. It didn't change a thing. Every It's unabashedly Canadian, our show, where we're, we're quoting Canadian politicians on stage, talking about a very Canadian experiences, making jokes about Montreal and Halifax. And everywhere we go, the story resonates. Everyone can in some way relate to some ancestral connection to somebody who had to leave somewhere to be safe and to come somewhere else and to either feel welcomed or not feel welcomed. Varying degrees of, of that experience were, were resonating everywhere we brought the show. I feel like not only has the context changed, you know, a big international way, it changes everywhere we set up. There will be a different resonance with an audience in Australia talking about uh, offshore uh, refugee colonies. We were in Scotland at the moment of Brexit and they were talking about the country of Scotland having different politics surrounding refugees than their comrades to the South uh, in in England. So I feel like there is a a nuanced and meaningful change in the resonance everywhere we do the show, but -hmm. yet there's also something universal about the themes that unfortunately continue to be very relevant everywhere we take the piece. So in a way, it's funny, we haven't changed a thing about the show. But does it change as a, as a piece of theater? Absolutely. It's a living, breathing thing. And often we'll find when we do have talkback or, or conversations, those can be some of the most charged moments. I remember a talkback in Sydney, Australia, where this guy evoked this idea that perhaps the, the Quran was uh, a plea to people to commit violence and the audience was booing and hissing. And it was an incredible town hall moment where people were debating uh, literally the politics that were in their political moment that they were existing in. Yes, it has changed, but it also changes every single time we do it, depending on right. where we are, depending on what's right. going on in the news and depending on what, what's going on in people's lives. Ben, you were gonna add? Well, just to add to that, yeah, I think that you know one of the advantages that this show has, I'll say, you know, we chose to reflect on the moment of 2015 with a story from 1908. It's this illustration that this moment is not a new moment. It's the same shit, and it's been the same shit for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. With that foundation and with our attempt to universalize the struggle through the specific, it's given us something that that remains inevitably contemporary, mm-hmm. um, no matter where we are, no matter what year it happens to be. 
So I guess I want to shift uh, a little bit. This was inspired somewhat, Christian, the way you described uh, the company itself and as an agent of, of creation, innovation, and transformation. So I want to kind of focus, and I want to hear from both of you, what in your experiences as artists guides you, leads you to what you believe to be transformative? Is it you, you've been in the business long enough. You've been telling the stories. You've been certainly you're, you you empathize with the characters within your worlds that you create. What is it that you believe changes people to making them more compassionate? Because compassion is a huge part of what you uh, wrote about in your vision. But this is a question for the both of you. So, what is it that you think makes people change? especially in our polarized world. <laughs> yeah. Well, and that's an interesting word. I, I think what I was thinking was, mm. first of all, it's bringing people together. Obviously, we're theater artists. And I think this show and all of the shows that I make attempt to make some virtue of the fact of the presence of the audience. In this piece, I'll, I'll use a, a mundane example from the show, or maybe it's not that mundane, but I'll use an example from the show. Ben swears a lot in the show. There are... Uh, somewhere between 10 and 20 F-bombs in the show. Often people will complain about that. <laughs> and what I say to those people is the use of profane language in this show is very intentional. It comes at very precise moments. It's meant to remind you that he speaks with a contemporary voice. He is here now, today. So although the show might take place in 1908, we don't want the audience to be permitted to kind of wistfully drift off and think, oh, what a shame it was how anti-Semitic we were in 1908. No, this is a piece about today. We're talking about the world today. We're talking about whether it's anti-Semitism in the world today or xenophobia in a bigger sense of the word or Islamophobia. This show is asking you to engage with a human experience that is timeless, but also timely. And so whenever Hannah drops an F-bomb into the script, it's a little... Brechtian pinprick to remind you to sit up. You are here now. This is not the way the characters spoke in 1908. No, that's because the Wanderer is speaking to you. If I can, like, I'll, I guess I'll say two things. One is that piece. I, we're always dealing with, no matter what the time and place of the story is, there's always that reminder that this is happening right here, right now, today. And we believe that there is something in this piece that can speak to your contemporary world. And, and that's where the name of the company comes from, To Be. When we talked about, you know, what did we want, what kind of stories did we want to tell? The answer was stories about modern existence and just simply what it means to be. The second piece that I'll say, and again, it's specific in this show, I'm always drawn to theater that has music as part of it. One of the things I love, I think it's a, it's, it's a Nietzsche quote to say, you know, we listen to music with our muscles. And that feels very true to me. You're always, you, you know, we tap our fingers or we tap our feet or we bob our heads when music starts happening. And this is something that both Hannah does and that's something that, that Ben does with this piece. We try to create a show that is fun, that is pleasurable, and that opens hearts. And so the music in a way does that for me. It has people kind of, singing along, tapping along, moving along with the show so that there's kind of an openness and a, a corporeal experience, not just an intellectual one. And again, an awareness that you're breathing air with all these other humans in a room together. So there's a song early in the show where people clap along. And to me, that's a, that's a big sort of moment where people, again, are very aware of the space that they're in. And then when the content uh, starts having sort of more let's say, challenging ideas in it. 
they're already working from a place that is that is kind of physically aware of their their presence in a space, a social space with other humans. I like to make work that is pleasurable and fun, but also has big ideas in it. And hopefully the the manner in which we communicate those ideas uh, invites people to kind of have a deeper engagement with it and take something away from the show. Thank you. And Ben, would you like to comment on that? Because certainly you're out front doing it. Um, you must feel it in a way, the audience, every, every, every night's a different animal. And could you just comment on yeah, that? Yeah. So I'll, I'll, I'll say that I take umbrage with the question itself. You know, it's, okay. it's, it's good. You know, I, I would say that my, my goal is never to change a person because I start with, from the foundation that we're all good people. Right. And that even the people whose politics I find abhorrent, you know, I, I do believe that they are making political choices based on their perception of the good. I don't think that anybody is evil. I think that even the people that I that I cannot imagine how they can construct such a worldview, I think that they are trying to do good for their family right. or for their priorities, for whatever. And so for me, it's not about trying to affect change. It's about trying to offer another data point. It's trying to offer an emotional experience, an intellectual experience, a physical experience that can sit beside the other perspectives on the intellectual or mental or whatever kind of bookshelf of the mind. So yeah. that when people are confronted with difficult questions, that they have another source that they can refer to. Right. And so for me, it's it's just about trying to curate as meaningful an experience as possible so that that thing, that emotional kernel does get stored away and, and lives in the person so that when they are having a conversation about refugees or when they're having a conversation about xenophobia or whatever it is, that there's this lived experience that they have that they can draw on. Um, I, I can't thank you enough. I was just going to say what one last little thing. What's it like being back in front of a live audience? <laughs> I mean, it's wonderful. I hate <laughs> Zoom concerts so much. And so it's just, it's, there's, I mean, I think that, you know, I, I am a live performer. Um, you know, I, I, I make videos from time to time and I make records because that's part of what you got to do. But for me, you know, the thing that makes me want to get out of bed in the morning and the thing that makes me want to continue a career in the arts is that feeling of being on stage in front of people. And it's just, it's a wonderful thing to, to be reminded of how important and how special and how, uh, how, what a privilege it is to be able to do this kind of work and to be able to once again, be in spaces with, with people. building. Thank you to both of you for an extraordinary interview. It's fantastic. Um, I also want to recognize that Hutzpah Festival will be co-presenting with us for the 10 show run from December the 1st to the 11th. So can't wait to have you here. Can't wait to see how the audiences respond. And uh, you guys are phenomenal. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.